Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. With us today is Ben Fetter. He has written a super interesting book called Take Off Your Shoes, One Man's Journey from the Boardroom to Bali and Back. Uh, He is the president of international partnerships for the US uh, at Tencent, the Chinese internet titan, and formerly he was the CEO of Take-Two Interactive. And uh, Ben is here, first of all, I know Ben and, and I know his family. Uh, but Ben is here because he, is, he and his family made this sort of very interesting and unusual decision that uh, many people fantasize about, but few actually follow through on. And that was he and his family went to Bali and they took a sabbatical. And it was about an eight-month sabbatical in Bali. So um, I thought it would be fun to bring him on and to have a conversation about what it was like to make that decision, to leave, what it was like to be there, what it's like to come back. And, and sort of glean what we can, both in terms of the sort of leadership decisions that we make that might bring us out of leadership roles and then back in, as well as just the very human decisions that we make. So Ben, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Peter. It's really a joy to be here and to be here with you, especially. So, so Ben, you made this decision and you and Victoria and, and I guess along with the kids too, uh, yeah. made this decision to... Not the kids, we made to, the You made the decision. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why did you decide you had this very... In fact, first paint a brief picture of your success or your role or what your life was like before you decided to, uh, to go to Bali. Um, you know, I had kind of a, uh, a securitist route to uh, what's commonly defined as success. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I became, so I kind of had an MBA from Ivy League school, did the jobs, did, um, you know, had an ambition to be a superstar like everybody else wanted to be a superstar. Right. Um, I did a startup before it was sexy to do a startup. Um, and just as I was leaving my startup, one of my board members who was a very successful uh, media executive, was leaving his gig and he was on my board and I had sold my company and um, we were both looking at deals and he sort of said, well, why don't we do this together? Let's hunt as a pack instead of being lone wolves. Right. And um, we started uh, we started a firm and we knew we knew how to run companies. We didn't know how to run uh, capital, but we had this ambition to run capital. It was, the fir- it was a private equity firm? So it started as kind of a fund, what we call a fundless sponsor. It ultimately uh-huh. became a private equity firm. Right. But two minutes before we actually raised the fund, um, we did our last, what we call a fundless sponsor deal. Um, right. And it was a hostile takeover, what I'll call a non-hostile, hostile takeover of um, Take-Two Interactive. Um, it's ancient history at this point. It happened right. 2007, 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I became not quite the accidental CEO, but it was, uh, it was kind of a deliberate action. Right. But I became CEO. The idea was that I'd work there for six months and until we find a CEO who actually knew what he was doing. Um, and it had was, you ever been CEO of a company before? You I, had yes, company, I had. I yeah. Kind of, yeah, I was an entrepreneur. But right. this was this was right. you know two thousand people, you know, just under a billion dollar market cap. Right. Um, today it's a fifteen billion dollar market cap, and it's a very very successful turnaround story. But the company was in deep trouble. We don't have to go into it, but it's in deep trouble, and it was a very uh, difficult turnaround. 
So I want to read a passage from your book and tell me if this actually, I mean, you wrote it, but if, you know, if this, as I read it, if it brings you back to that time and if it's sure. representative. In the corporate world, I had been both predator and prey. Working in that universe, my amygdala was set to full throttle. I acted with aggression, even hostility, when I saw opportunities. When a large competitor aggressed, I fought intensely for a maximal outcome. Even when not in direct battle, I was always looking for a strategic advantage, just as any CEO should. But in the process, I lived with a constant rasp of anxiety because I was always on high alert, always on the lookout for hazards. Uh, true, all true. <laughs> it's good because you wrote it. Yeah, but right. it's but it you know like that's the that, it's very evocative that that both image and the feeling of it. Well, I imagine that's, you know any number of uh, CEOs and um, ambitious men and women feel that right. They're right. out there every day fighting it. It feels right. like a fight every day. Right. Um, it's not to say there aren't immense moments of joy and uh -huh. and uh, satisfaction for what you do. Um, and I literally, when I say I was both predator and prey, right? I got into Take Two as as part of a hostile bid. Um, and then very shortly afterwards, while we're in the middle of a turnaround, we took a hostile bid from a, from a competitor. Right. And so, you know, I literally, I was kind of, I had to protect the company as, a, as, a, as the prey and also got in there as the predator. So how did you decide, let's fast forward now to like, you make this decision to drop out for some period of time. Yeah. I don't know if you even consider it as dropping out, but to, to certainly drop out of this life. How did you make that Wait, decision? First of all, the way I say it is I just, I, I realized that I needed to take myself out of the game. Right. I don't want to say drop out. I just need to take myself out of the game for a period of time. That's a very scary decision that a lot of people kind of feel, but very, very few people make. Yeah. Did you feel like you couldn't correct while in the game? Uh, I think I probably reached the point where it was one or the other. I felt that I had reached a point in my career where I'd followed my ambition. Right. Um, and it took me to a place that I wasn't comfortable with. And right. was that I, that place that I described, or is it something no, else? No, I just kind of, you know, you know, when I say in the book I'd reached a point, I, said, I kind of said to myself, this is where men become the husbands and fathers they never intended to be. You follow your ambition, you follow your career, and before you know it, like me, I was on an airplane, you know, all year long, all the time. I didn't know my kids anymore, and I had this recognition that my youngest didn't know who I was, my oldest was on his way to high school, and he was a serious student, and I had this one moment where I kind of I walk into his room and I come back from work and he's sequestered in his room. He's barricaded, doing his work. He's a serious student. And right. I said, "Hey, Sam," and he just kind of mumbled something to me. And he mumbled some more at dinner. And I just I had this 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 realization. I don't know out of nowhere that he's going to go to high school. This is going to get worse. Right. I'll be circling the globe. Right. And then he's off to college. And then it's kind of over. I had this moment. It's like it's all going to end sometime soon. Right. And. What are we doing here? So it's not that you were uncomfortable with the sort of predator prey and the anxiety and the role that you were playing. It was uh, maybe maybe that played into it somewhat, but it sounds like the driver was much more like there's this part of your life you can't access while you're doing that other stuff that you're not going to be able to spend the time with your family and with your kids and you didn't want to and, and that was a window and frankly and frankly a little fear that I would actually lose them. You know, as a result right. of not paying attention, right? Not being deliberate about how I was spending my time, right? Right, and I didn't want that. I really didn't want that. I didn't want right. to be that dad. And you and I both know people who had parents or fathers that were committed right. to their careers and not to the family, right. and and what the knock-on effects of that could be, right? So, right. Um, you know, I didn't want to be that person, right? And I just wanted to make a deliberate choice. And right. yeah, it was ter it was terrifying. Right. It was totally terrifying, right? Because you have so much, you have so much of your identity is wrapped up in this, right? And to walk away from it in the name of something that's really kind of unknown. And there was a lot of unknowns around it. And I was like, you know, I remember telling my wife, Victoria, just 
what am I going to do all day long? There's all the stimulation coming right. at you all day. You know, right. you're in New York, you're running a big company, it's a global operation. What do you do with all that stimulation? And so, you know, just to fast forward a little bit, it's not that, you know, that description that you read is no longer the case. And we'll talk a little about it in the course of this discussion, but right. it's the what I have done since taking sabbatical, at sabbatical and since taking sabbatical, to allow myself to be in that situation without being completely swallowed by it. Right. right? To be in that situation where you are responding instead of reacting. Right, right. And um, being... Um, you know, to me, these are kind of matrix moves, right? Right. And, um, but when, but that passage you read, I was in the matrix, I right. was outside the right. matrix. So what, when you said it was terrifying, which I believe, what, what was it that scared you? Like when you think of like the top thing, so one of the things you said was, what am I gonna do with all my time? Like I'm in the middle of all this activity and action. Yeah. What else scared you? Uh, look, you know, I had a small partnership with, um, I want to say men and women, it was actually just men at the time, uh -huh. um, that I felt very close to and connected to. And, um, you know, out of the personality types, you know, Enneagrams or whatever right. um, you focus on, I'm a loyalist. I'm a total loyalist. Right. And doing something for myself instead of for the benefit of the company or, the, um, or my partnerships or the right. people I was involved with is anxiety-provoking because it's just not who I am, right? right. I, I'm a very, very loyal guy. Right. And, um, and it drives me, right? And sort of say, you know what? I, I just can't do this anymore. Right. I need to do this for myself and for my family. Right. Um, in an odd way, it's kind of like, you know, most people would sort of say, well, good for you, right? Do, your, do it for yourself. But it's right. just not how I'm wired. I'm right. much more about um, being a loyalist than anything else. Right. I'm curious if, like, when I think about making a move like that, and, and I've sort of considered it, I think, you know, I've got this very successful career. If I, if I did that, can I, can I get back into it? Can right. I, would, would, would people forget me? I mean, I remember once I was leaving uh, for a month. I was going to go to France for a month with my family. And one of my clients, who was a close friend, and he was ribbing me, but he goes, don't worry. You know, you're going to go. We're going to um, forget about everything that we've learned, and we're going to slide back. We're going to kind of forget about you, and we're going to find someone else who's going to replace you and you know do the work with us as a firm and i'm like congratulate like great you just hit my three like scariest <laughs> parts about like leaving like you got it you all like, the buttons. those are those are the buttons like that, right. those are the things right and i'm still friends with them and i still work with them but, but like know, a, lot of, a lot of and that was just a month a lot of that's true a right. lot of that's true right you right. know the expression the cemetery is filled with people with, who are irreplaceable right and um right. ostensibly irreplaceable right and so nobody's irreplaceable right um and i took comfort a little bit that um, you know, Take-Two was run, you know, I was the CEO, I was leading the company, but, you know, my partners were in there also. So right. I knew that if I left, there wouldn't be the disruption, right? They wouldn't right. launch a search. It's just, in fact, that's not what happened. My partner stepped into the role. So right. there was continuity. Right. Um, and um, uh, and the, the, the odd thing is when I, well, you know, I know we're not doing this chronologically, but when I came back, the odd thing was like, apropos of being forgotten, I'd come back, people say, are you back already? It feels like people like yesterday. You know, everybody's kind of caught up in their, in their routine. Own day to and day. Yes, yeah, so this is kind of the other truth about most people are not thinking about you. Most people are thinking about themselves. Right, right, right. right? There's this great experiment where they put people into waiting rooms with a big stain on their shirt, yeah. right? And they went and they sat in the waiting room and, and then they talked to the people who were in the waiting room 
and and the people who had the stain on their shirt and the people in the stain on the shirt said I felt I felt kind of ashamed or I felt so like it was so obvious and everybody was looking it. at me you know like and the other people in the room were like who are you talking about like I, like I you know like people yes. just didn't like we yes. we think we're much more noticeable than we actually are yes that, all, right. all that is true right um, okay so so then you guys decide to go uh, and. You know, I kind of want to bypass the how do we choose Bali over other places. Sure. That's sort of interesting, and it's sure. in the book, and people can read about it. But I'm curious now. You've gotten there. What's your experience? What are you like? What do you do with all of your time? You suddenly have all this time. Do you are you still checking email? Are you, you know, are you blissfully relaxed for the next eight months? So here's what goes look, on. Well, first of, all, first of all, the detox for me took right. detox is probably the wrong word. Um, but just to clear the cobwebs from my mind, probably right. took six to eight weeks, like almost two months of just, you know, that process of detaching. What was that and like I, for you? Like, what was it like to I have this moment in the release. book where I kind of felt like, you know, at the time it was like Blackberries, not even iPhones, that's how long ago it was. Right. But, um, but I have this uh, moment where I'm kind of reaching into my pockets for my phone. Right. And like it's almost like this amputee there. with a phantom limb. It's just like you're right. trying to scratch. There's right, nothing to right, scratch. Right. Um, and uh, so it was it was hard at first. And and what I really, was hard was just the habit, or was something else hard? Uh, it was hard letting go. It was hard detaching. You lost. It was your hard accepting that I had done this. Right? Tell I me more cut, about that. Um, you know, in the moment, I could not have the articulate. I couldn't articulate what I just articulated to you about why I left. Right? I right. kind of. I wasn't sure why I left. I knew right. I needed to leave, but I wasn't exactly sure, and I was trying right. to understand it. Um, and that residual fear that you described, similar elements, are still in my mind. It's like, you know, what did I just do? What did right. I? What did I do? Why, right. why did I do it? Right. Um, and I was still. Uh, you know, I was in the video game business, which is very, at the time, it was kind of very release-oriented. There's always kind of a game in development. It's getting released at Christmas or whenever it is. Right. And in my mind, I'm still kind of thinking about, like, you know, what's going on in the game, what's going on in the company. I still felt very attached to it because the truth of the matter is I loved the people in the company. Right. I loved uh, uh, being a leader in that organization. Right. Um, I was really, really into it. Right. And because I, and I, I, which is another way of saying I actually sacrificed a lot. Um, Were you worried like that competitive piece, like other people are surpassing you, other, like, like your, your standing in the industry as a business leader, is that, like, did that enter your mind or concern you at all? Uh, a little bit. I, you know, if anything, maybe, uh, you know, my standing in the partnership, right, I was still part, I was leading a company, but I was also right. part of a private equity group, so. Which I guess also yeah. might have been a comfort, right, because you knew at least at that time in your thinking, this is something you can go back to. Like you yes. have their approval that you yes, can leave. Yes, that's and true. Come back. But there's there, you know. But every partnership, there's always a discussion about economics and who's getting what and all that's carved right, out. Right. And you kind of you're so you're so holding on to the, um, you know, the incentive systems and the money and the right. benefits. You're holding, you're grabbing onto that, right? right. And so one of the greatest um, freedoms that I got out of Bali is sort of this process of letting go of that. And it's like you know what? I'm living my life, right? right. Forget the incentives. Forget right. all the. All that stuff that the world puts around you to motivate you to do certain things and behave right. in certain ways, right. right? And that you know I put in place for my company, right? It's right. Like here's a compensation scheme. You know we want you to behave in certain ways, and all of a sudden being released from that is this great liberty right. and this great freedom. So once once that released, right, yeah. and once you got to sort of a new stasis 
somewhat, I don't know if it was, you know, probably always changing to some degree, but what was there? What was left when you let go of, you know, the comp schemes and your role and your identity and you're in Bali now with your family, what's left? So let me take a brief segue yeah. to answer that question. Um, uh, the name of the book comes from a poem mm -hmm. um, by a guy named David White. Mm -hmm. And um, and it's he evokes Moses at the burning bush and, it, and, um, and he says, take off your shoes and Moses realizes he's standing on holy grounds. And there are two insights that come from, that I got from this poem. Right. One is that um, the way David White described it in his poem, right? Moses discovers his holy ground at that moment, and he discovers that he has been on holy ground his entire life. Right. And so one of my great discoveries was that uh, with the people that I loved and reconnecting to my own ground of being and kind of removing myself from all of the corporate stuff kind of allowed me to find my own holy ground, to find myself right. back again, which I think had gotten lost in the process of my career development. Um, and the other... Uh, thing he says is there is this he, David White describes this moment where he's kind of reading this poem in mm -hmm. public and somebody comes over to him who knows Hebrew and sort of says you know the word for takeoff in the Bible the Hebrew word for that is the same word the Bible uses for an animal shedding its skin molting its skin mm -hmm. and the insight is that you kind of have to shed in order to renew right and um, and that's kind of a feeling I have that I was I have the, had the sense of renewal, the sense of metamorphosis and emerging out of something um, old and need, needing to be shed. Right. And I can't quite describe, it kind of sounds a little bit spiritual, but I can't quite describe what that was. But it, I, I know today, if I just kind of before and after, if you take the photos before and after, right. I'm a much different person and, right. I, and I operate in the world in a much different way. Right. And people in honest moments, especially in, um, in the business sector, are very involved in still, right. they say, you're a you're a much better person now. You're a much nicer person now. You're much less of a jerk now than you were right. back then. Right. And, I th and I attribute all of that to this moment of, right. of renewal. And, um, you know, after you get past that six to eight weeks right. what does, what, and what's involved in that. And there are practices that I developed and, and not all that is by accident. Some of it's a lot of it's deliberate. Right. Um, you talk specifically a lot in the book about both meditation and painting. Meditation, Drawing. painting, and yoga. And three, yoga. Three yoga. of them, yeah. actually. Right. Um, and they are all—they all come to me in, in very different ways, but they're all kind of at the end of the day reconnecting with my ground of being, right. and um, letting go of my ego. Right. Before you left, would you have ever said words like reconnecting with my ground of being? I don't even know. I wouldn't even know what. What I, that right, meant. I, I bet of your audience, very few people will know what that means. <laughs> right. But, right. But I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe. I mean, because. Yeah. Look, here's the truth. I think my truth is that, you know, what I think is kind of like my dirty little secrets, I think it goes on in everybody's mind. Right. Right. Everybody has the sense of right. like, okay, I'm not, I'm, you know, a part of me is what I do for a living. Right. But it's not 100% who I am. Right. There are all these other elements. It sounds like it's me. a smaller part of you now than it was maybe 10 years ago. Work? Yeah. Maybe not? No. I don't, I don't think so. No. I think I have a much... Different balance. I kind of. I don't really believe in balance. Actually, I think I, I believe in fierce engagement in all of it. Right. Whether it's yourself, your family, your work. I, you know. I. But you feel I, as involved in your work now as you were before you left. I do, and in many ways, I actually think I'm achieving more and, and accomplishing more. Right. 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 Um, but and I. But I do it with a much softer touch. So, what is the ground of your being? Uh, well, I was hoping you wouldn't make me define that. Um, <laughs> It's hard, you know, it's hard, right? I mean, with a, it's certainly in an interview like this, it's hard to kind of really get into it. But yeah. um, uh, I think the simplest way to understand it is, you know, while I'm there, really understanding kind of uh, 
who I am, what my priorities are. Um, there's a lot of talk about mindfulness in, in mainstream. At the time when I did it, it wasn't mainstream at all. It was just right. like, how do you be mindful about how you're spending your time, right. how you're talking to yourself in your own inner monologue, um, how you are uh, dealing with others, um, interacting with others, right. and um, and feeling like you're being honest with yourself in the way you are making a living, mm-hmm. in the way you're having relationships. Um, it's a much more honest way. To me, it kind of feels uh, more authentic right. than in just kind of like, I just want to go out there and kill it, right? right. I just want to go out there and you know make my millions. And have you found yourself now in situations where you make specific trade-offs? You say, you know what, this might be the more aggressive business decision or business choice I might have made, but it's not feeling right to me, or it's not connected enough to my heart, or it's not connected to the ground of my being in a way where I'm not going to do it. Have you found moments like that? Well, there's actually a moment in the book that I describe of um, when I come back and there is a similar opportunity to take two of a hostile takeover and then taking over the company and turning it around. Um, and. The way we did it at Take Two actually was, I'd call it non-hostile, right? It was very, um, it was very subtly done. There was no proxy fight. There was no nasty stuff in the press. It was very quick and very um, almost it was an uh, orchestrated. Meeting. It was it was if somewhat in, not a, not there was an in-person an meeting, in-person but it wasn't meeting. the whole thing wasn't in person. Mm. Um, and this this other this new opportunity would have been a little bit much more of a fight. And I knew it was the right thing to do, and I knew if, if it didn't get, if somebody didn't intervene, the company would continue to circle the drain and ultimately go right. down the drain. Um, and uh, and so I had this sense of indignation, right? Like, you know, somebody's got to fix this company, you know, and I got to do it, and I can do it. Right. Um, and then I just thought for a moment, you know, what it would take uh, for me that kind of hostility is just not something I wanted to feed. Right. Right. This notion, you know, there's a lot. I talk a little bit about neuroscience, which I'm interested in, and. Um, you know, the, the more you behave in a certain way, the more you behave in that way, right? You set right. These, these patterns in your mind. And if you behave in a hostile way, you begin to just behave in a hostile way and you can right. more and more. And I just didn't want to feed that process right. of being hostile that way. Right. So you stepped out of it. You chose not to. So I, I, I stepped back. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, what have you discovered now that you're back, right? I mean, you've been back for a while now, yeah. right? What, yeah. what year did you come back? It was, two, 2000, uh, so it was 2011, 2012. Okay, great. Okay, so you've been back for... A, you know, eight years, seven yeah. years. What What do you notice now, right? Not Not right when you got back. I mean, I'm kind of interested in that too, like what the transition was like. Yeah. In fact, let's go there for a second. Okay. Like what the transition was like. What's it like getting off the plane and coming back? And, you know, there's this, I think I have it written down here, quote from Victoria, um, where she says, you're still on sabbatical. She said, once you get into the work mindset, it's all over. Right. And I'm curious if that's true. Um, or, but it doesn't sound like it's true. Oh, that's interesting. It's, no, it's not true, actually. Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, the, I mean... The, it's not a vacation. The that immediate a vacation versus what happened. The immediate transition uh, for my kids was really straightforward. Right? They just got back into their friends, into their schools. They were kind of returning heroes. They were cool kids for right. about a week, and then they were like everybody else. Right. Um, Although I want to just, just read, just for the fun of it, because it's kind of fun to read this. Um, this is from Sam, I think. Leaving Sam, Bali, Sam, my oldest child. Your oldest child. Yeah. I believe it was him. Um, you'll correct me if I'm wrong. Leaving Bali sucks, he said. It's the mood and the family we built over the last few months. Now we're going back to our regular New York thing. 
I knew exactly what he meant. This is you talking now. How would we keep our sense of adventure going? How could we maintain our closeness once we reintegrated into the structures and responsibilities of work, school, and extended family? I didn't have good answers to those questions. Can you carry the mood inside you? We both, we both you, that's the question you asked. We both knew it was a trite line. So here's, uh, so eight years later, looking back, I would say that this sabbatical still is kind of this defining uh, foundational thing for our family, right? Mm -hmm. It's something we all know we did together right. and we still talk about. In fact, Victoria and I went back this summer um, and you know, there was kind of this joke in the family Now my kids are older, right? So are you guys coming back? Are you staying? You know, are you ever coming back? Um, and Bali is kind of a magical place generally, but it's especially magical for, uh, for us, as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, and, um, but there is this, this just the idea of, of the sabbatical is important. The message that um, I, as the, the breadwinner in the family, or the kind of the guy who's kind of at work all the time, made the decision in order to be with my family mm -hmm. is n not in any way lost on my children. Right. Um, as they've grown up, they are exposed to any number of kinds of parents, kinds of family situations. You know, it's a really, really broad range, especially right. in New York City. Uh, and they're very thankful for what they have. So there is this, uh, there is this understanding among all of them, and, and me and Victoria, of the gift that this was to them and to us. Right. Um, and how important it has been ever since. Even my youngest, who probably has the vaguest memories at the right. time, she was seven, right. um, understands all of that. And it's part of the lore. It becomes it's part, part, it's of, part of It's part of the lore of the family. And if you right. walked into our apartment today, you would see artifacts of Bali right. still there, and, and we go back periodically. And so right. it's part of our lives. Um, and I don't want to leave this interview without mention of this amazing ex um, experience we had at Green School in Bali, which That's also, the school that your children went to and that there were a lot of expat kids there. A lot of expat kids. It was, it was only three years old when we went, but it's a school dedicated to teaching kids about the environment and it's a school dedicated to global citizenship and love of learning. Right. It's the most extraordinary place I've ever been to. Mm -hmm. uh, and the teaching about global citizenship and the environment has stayed with all my children, hmm. right? To this day, my kids will never underpay, almost under pain of death, right? Drink water from a plastic bottle because they know the evils of it. Right. Um, my daughter was uh, involved in the ban of plastic bags in New York City, uh -huh. um, and uh, and there's this great sense of kind of doing something for the environment generally. Right. Um, all of which I attribute to Green School. It's helped that it's kind of in the in the air now anyway. Well, and it's interesting but, too because your kids and your family has a very very strong Jewish identity. Yeah. And this sounds like they have beyond that a very very strong global identity. Right. Which is well. which is yeah. a value of of Judaism. I was going to say it's a value of Victoria. It's both a value and a struggle for Victoria and me, right? Because on the one hand, we don't want to, you know, the, the culture is important, but we don't in any, right. wa any way want them to be parochial. Right. And, um, uh, and it's kind of this, kind of this expression of, right. you know, you, yes, it's a value of Judaism to repair the world, but it's right. also a value of ours to kind of have this balance of you need, you need to participate. Right. You can't just withdraw into your own uh, into your own culture. In New York, it's really where there where there's such a rich Jewish culture. Right. It's very easy to just to withdraw into your own bubble and not engage in the rest of the world. Right. And it's and I think they understand that it's a value in our family to utterly engage in the world. Right. Why did you write the book? Uh, it's a good question. You know, I, I, like most achievements in my life, I credit my wife, um, and she uh, she encouraged me to do it. There were kind of a few ghosts that I needed to work out. And what I found was, you know, like why, your, your questions, you know, why did I do it? I didn't quite understand it. 
And I found something really interesting in the process of writing the book. Mm -hmm. um, you know, she said, I'll write a book, it'll be, it'll help you, it'll be cathartic. It wasn't cathartic at all. And I found it actually very hard. Um, but we you know we all have uh, these narratives in our lives. We have multiple, all this information. Right. And in order to write a book that's readable, you need to tell a real story, right? You need to have, and it was a very deliberate thing on my part, like I'm gonna tell a story about my quest, right? right. This is my story. But to do that, you're deliberately leaving out all sorts of parts, and right. you are deliberately uh, setting up the sequence of events in order to fit into the, into the narrative arc, right? Yeah, it needs to fit into the arc. And the really interesting part about that is once you kind of fit all the events in your life to tell something in a really cogent, cohesive, it's like, okay, I get right. the story. It's very clear. A leads to B to C and D. And nobody's lives are actually like that. Right. <laughs> um, but when you tell the story that way, right, you begin to focus on one particular narrative arc. There are many right. in your life. And the story that you tell others, one or two, the stories that you tell others becomes the story you tell yourself and right. becomes, and it's clarifying, right? It kind of, it right. gets rid of all the noise and focuses on the signal and it's clarifying about what you believe. And I think that's true in personal lives. I think it's true in business also, you know, if you go to business school and you read a case, right? It's, you know, they pick certain facts to tell a story and we all do it all the time. I just think it's human nature. Right. And, um, and I found that very, very, first of all, I found the editing more than the writing to be super creative mm -hmm. and super interesting. Um, and then, but also kind of helped me tell a story to myself right. because I'm telling it to others. Did that help you reintegrate? Uh, somewhat. I mean, the push and pull there was on the one hand, yes. On the other hand, you know, while I was writing it, while I was integrating, I was like, why am I writing? It's so, be, so beside the point. Why am I doing this? Right. No interest in being an author as right. a career. Um, but I just felt, I don't know, I just felt compelled to do it. And I kind of like, I, I questioned while I was doing, and yet every day I right. get in front of the computer and write. Because it seems to me like it's one way of not leaving the experience totally behind, right? Not saying like, okay, now I'm here, now I'm going to focus on this stuff and, and, and not that stuff. And it's well, a way for, of... and for me too, I wanted to be clear to myself more than anything else that this wasn't a, a long vacation. vacation. Right. This was not a long vacation. Right. There was meaning behind this and right. there was... Um, there was kind of deliberate choices that I made along the way. In right. fact, people ask me, you know, what are the lessons of the book? And I was like, first of all, there are no lessons right. in the book, right? I just tell my story, you draw whatever lessons you want. Right. But if I had to, if I was forced, right, one of them is, you know, living, making deliberate choices along the way, right? right? Living life deliberately. Right. And, um, and so that's kind of, and I, that's what I, I, so this is the message that I wanted to send to myself, if not others. This wasn't a vacation, right? This was an exploration and this was right. life-changing. Right. And um, um, in a very, very important way. And I think some people find it inspirational, aspirational, motivational. Whatever it is, it's my story. You can take what right. you want from it. Well, and I'm also hearing you say, and this is actually very instructive, there's like a lesson of writing in the book. <laughs> you know, not just the lesson in the book, but the lesson of writing the book is that you, that, that sometimes you can have an experience which has any sorts of numbers of meaning, but to really create meaning, like you actually create meaning by writing the story. Yes. Like you create the, like, so this is what it meant. Yes. Like but you create I, but, that. Meaning. But the converse of that, I would argue, uh -huh. right, the irony of the book is that, you know, so much of the story is about finding this kind of, um, uh, non-achieving, non-ego <laughs> kind of way. And the irony is like, well, of course, you wrote a book. Wrote it's a another, book right? Yet another achievement, right. you know, so. Right, right. Um, it's so interesting. Um, so that's the irony of the whole thing. Well, I'm glad you wrote the book. It's a, it's a book well worth reading. Again, the book is Take Off Your Shoes, One Man's Journey from the Boardroom to Bali and Back. Um, 
And and Ben, I just want to tell you, like in in closing, I um, the reason I re picked up the book because I I got it when you sort of first put it out. But the reason I re picked it up is because I was you know in California with a friend of mine from Toronto who told me that she was going to go live in uh, Spain, I think Barcelona, you know, for a year starting in 2020. And I was like, really? That's so interesting. What what gave you, you know, the idea or why are you deciding to do that? Well, I read this book by this guy who went to Bali. Oh, he was from New York and he went to Bali. And I'm like, <laughs> Ben, a Jewish guy. And I'm like, Ben Fetter. And he's like, and she's like, yeah, how, how do you know? I was like, she said, I should have guessed that I don't know, Jewish in New York. I'm like, there's a lot of Jews in New York. Like, that wouldn't be the reason. But I do happen to know him, and I happen to know him. So, you know, I do get this every now and then. So I, like, I got an email recently. Some guy sort of says, I'm just back. <laughs> I traveled the world for a year with my kids. It was the most amazing thing I've ever done. You inspired me. Thank you. I was like, I don't know her. Yeah, I don't know her. Right, right. It's yeah. great. It's like the, the ability to I'm waiting to for the emails like, we don't know. I hate like, you. I you hate destroyed you. my life. I'm still stuck in Bali. <laughs> I can't get out. My family left. <laughs> right, right. right. Well, thank you. Thank you for writing the book and thank you for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you for your interest. It's really been fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks to Claire Marshall for producing this episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.